Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. Back in the late 1990s, my then-girlfriend's dad used to talk about this thing called permaculture this method for doing farming, like the farm was an ecosystem rather than a monocrop. I didn't really get it at the time, but I thought it sounded kind of punk with a hardcore edge that resonated with my emerging environmental consciousness. Thank you, Tony. You planted a seed in my mind that would germinate 15 years later when I took the permaculture design course at Ceres Community Environment Park in Melbourne, which I've taught into ever since. Australian biologist Bill Mollison and his student David Holmgren developed the permaculture design system in the 1970s as a means of producing nutritious and affordable food while regenerating ecosystems and enhancing biodiversity. As a design system, permaculture utilises a set of design principles to develop agricultural and social systems that mimic the diversity and self-regulation of ecosystems. As a system of ethics, Permaculture is based on regenerating ecosystems and their constituent life forms, as well as taking care of the needs of people and distributing the yields of permaculture systems in a fair and just manner. But what most intrigues me about permaculture is the grassroots network of permaculture practitioners that sprung up in over 100 countries around the world. Who are these people? How do they connect with each other? And how do they come together as an international community and movement? In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Fadei, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Manchester in the UK. Simon researches social movements and environmentalisms across many countries, including her recent research on the permaculture movement in India. In this convo, Simon and I talk about our recently published co-authored article, Permaculture, a Global Community of Practice, published in the journal Environmental Values in which we tease out how we can understand permaculture as a transnational movement. In addition, we explore the relationship between the permaculture movement and global inequality, First Nations sovereignty movements, and climate change mitigation and adaptation. We also reflect on the process of our research collaboration and offer some advice for early career researchers on pursuing collaborative projects. A couple of things before we launch into my discussion with Simon. First, a friendly reminder that you can support the production of this podcast by clicking the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. You can make a one-off monetary contribution of any amount to support the production of the podcast via PayPal, or you can become an Edge Dwellers Cafe subscriber on Patreon with access to bonus AV material and a monthly live interactive webinar for some frank and fearless chats about recent episodes and the wild times we live in. See the show notes for details. I'd also like to send a shout out to my friend Alison Newman, 
host of the Art of Being a Mum podcast. Ali chats to artists, musicians, writers and other creatives about the joys and issues they've encountered as mums who continue to make art. Topics include juggling the day-to-day of parenting, retaining identity, how their work is influenced by motherhood, mum guilt, the pros and cons of motherhood and everything in between. Okay, that's enough preamble from me. It's time for my conversation with Simin Fadei. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. Simin, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So we met each other in 2017 at the International Permaculture Convergence in Hyderabad in India. I had found the IPC, it was my first IPC. It was a wonderful experience to meet up with other permaculture practitioners from around the world. And it turned out we were doing some similar research. So that was a a natural attractor. And from that time, we've ended up becoming research collaborators. So it's in that capacity that we're having this discussion today. How did you find permaculture? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I was actually like thinking some time ago about this. So I have been interested in environmental movements and environmental activism for quite a long time. So my PhD dissertation was on, um, I'm originally from Iran, so my PhD dissertation was about emergence and evolution of Iranian environmental activism, environmental movement. And then uh, for postdoc, I went back a couple of times to check what has happened to the movement I, I studied for my PhD. And then during that time, I came across some of, so I saw that the movement has somehow moved, some part of it has moved towards more agriculture or food production. And then I I came across some people who were talking and thinking and practicing permaculture. So then I became more and more curious. I read about it and then I met more people and I visited more sites. Yeah, so that's how actually I came across it. But then I, it was just so fascinating because particularly the ethics of it, people care, earth care, fair share, they were really things that were preoccupying me at the time and even today. So I found it such an interesting and amazing way of thinking about our future, but also about actual practical work that we could do, you know, because visions, future thinking about future, the world we want to be in, what kind of a world, you know, has always been like my, uh, one of the interests that I have had. And I found that permaculture somehow provides like one aspect to that and it, it helps. Uh, so yeah, so that's how I became fascinated about that. And then uh, later I, I changed my, my region to India and uh, I also met some people who were practicing permaculture in India. And then I, I realized that there is no like, coherent study about the movement there so I decided to to research it myself and that's how when and how and when we met there's something very attractive about the permaculture ethics isn't there that it provides a vision for life and for the world that just is so life-affirming and then the design principles themselves provide a methodology for how to do it and so that's what attracted me to permaculture you know I was interested in environmental politics and environmental movements in Australia for quite a while and even teaching environmental politics but my students would ask well Ben we know there's big problems with environmental degradation what do we do about it and until I'd done the permaculture design course I didn't really have good practical hands-on answer to that question 
And so I had a, a sabbatical semester in 2014 where I had some time off to do some research. And I thought I'll do the permaculture design course in that period too, uh, which I did in Melbourne. And that was a, a life-changing experience, which led me into permaculture world to teaching into a permaculture design course here in Melbourne at Ceres Environment Park, uh, and also incorporating the design principles and the ethics into my teaching in my life. Exactly. I think that's really, really, really important about permaculture. That is not, a lot of people think it's only about like gardening, but it's not, you know, the, the ethics are so holistic. It's about life. It's about the way we, we do things, uh, in fact, uh, in all aspects of our life, we can use those, those principles, which I find very fascinating. Yeah, especially. And for people like us, you know, you're a sociologist, <clears throat> I'm a political scientist. And we're very interested in the, the politics and the social organization aspect of environmentalism and how society is structured. And the permaculture vision for the world very much speaks to that. And there's a real political aspect to it that is very interesting for people like us. So let's get to our co-authored article. It's called Permaculture, a Global Community of Practice. And I guess the core question that was guiding our research here was what kind of community is permaculture at an international scale? So we've got this movement, this group of people who are practicing permaculture in over 100 countries around the world. How does this community work? What can we call it? How can we understand how it functions at an international scale? Yeah, I mean, actually... I started thinking about permaculture more, more at a national level and then like gradually started thinking about it as a movement or anything else that could be understood beyond national borders. And I think that is where our, our interest somehow merged, right? Because you were also doing permaculture research in different countries and I was doing the research in India, but also like I was quite aware of its transnational aspect beyond board, national borders. Yeah, so I think this is a very, very interesting and important question. How can we define permaculture? Is it a social movement? Is it a community? Is it a collective? Is it a collectivity, a group? Can we, can we say it has similar characteristics when we think about it in na in, within national borders or when we think about it across uh, national borders? Uh, and this is exactly what our article is, uh, is addressing, right? So we are saying that Perhaps within, if we think about permaculture in one nation state, perhaps the characteristics that it has somehow speak to the main characteristics of a social movement. But the, the moment we start thinking about it beyond that, those borders, we are seeing something different. We are seeing maybe something more unique. It could perhaps speak to some of the characteristics of a transnational social movement, but it doesn't it is not quite there. So it is something else. And this was the, the thing that we were trying to figure out in our article, right? Which made it quite interesting because I have rarely come across a movement which within the nation state can be called a movement. But when we think about it beyond those borders, maybe it could be called something else. And this was very interesting. Yeah. And the, the nature of permaculture as a movement in individual countries is very different depending on where you are, isn't it? And, and we'll flesh that out in a little bit more detail shortly. But if we're thinking of social movement, we're obviously thinking about a direct, explicit, organized collective challenge to power and powerful interests, whether it's the state or international power structures of some kind. And that's not really what permaculture does, is it? 
No, permaculture is not. Yeah, so maybe this is actually one of the the differences that permaculture has when we think about the classical case of social movements that the demand making is directed towards the state, but in permaculture we don't have that. In permaculture, we are we are criticizing a system. Is more holistic criticism of uh, of what we are what what we are saying is a criticism of status quo you know something which is beyond the state's control in fact yeah and it's not based on traditional repertoires of political protest is it in a way that a social movement might be it's much more practice based Exactly. Yeah, when we think about the more classical cases of social movement, we think about street politics, we think about demonstrations, um, protests. Uh, However, yes, uh, as you very rightly mentioning, uh, in permaculture, we don't have that. But some scholars and activists, they also think permaculture is a kind of a direct action. So if you think uh, in those uh, terms, uh, we could somehow say, yes, if permaculture is uh, involved with direct action, then maybe we could put it next to those movements which are uh, which use street politics as their strategy, right? So it's, 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 it's a very interesting way of thinking about permaculture, uh, I think. Mm, that's the, the material politics argument of David Schlossberg and, and friends. Yeah, exactly. That's also a, a dimension to think about, like the way is about living sustainably, right? Everyday sustainable living practices uh, that change the flow of energy, resources within and between individuals, communities, economies. Yeah, this is very different from going to the street and shouting and uh, having slogans and placards, but it is, uh, it is a form of politics, right? Which led us to the idea of thinking of the international permaculture movement as a community of practice. Now, we're not the first people to talk about permaculture in terms of community of practice, but those previous studies had looked at it in relation to local projects in the UK and elsewhere at a very community level scale. We're thinking of permaculture as a community of practice at an international scale. So what's the attraction of the community of practice idea? And, And maybe we should define what it is. It starts with the idea that there are three elements to it, basically. So community of practice has three elements. Uh, The one is that shared domain that they talk about, a shared domain of interest um, and commitment to it, which leads to emergence and maintenance of a kind of identity, a collective identity, which is very important. And then the second element of it is communality, according to the theory, uh, which is the practice of manifesting community it this enables joint activities it builds up relationships interactions and mutual learnings and then the third element of it is shared practice that is about developing tools and ways of uh, addressing problems from our interviews i find it very interesting that we came up with the idea of communities of practice for permaculture beyond national borders through our research you know we we did not first came up with the idea and then go and do the research. But first we did the research and through our research, it was very inductive. And our interviewees, they told us what they felt, what they were. And then through those analyses, we came up with this bigger framework. And I guess it's the shared domain that's the most obvious manifestation of this community of practice internationally, because that includes the, the permaculture ethics and design principles, 
and this body of work with publications uh, that we find from people around the world who are using the permaculture design system in their local projects. And there's a huge body of work, both in popular literature and, and, and an emerging literature in the academic realm as well. So what can we say about the shared domain of permaculture in terms of its significance? Yeah, so, I mean, we talked about the ethics, uh, right? We started the, the conversation about the ethics, so permaculture ethics is part of it, permaculture design principles uh, are part of it. Uh, they, they are this unifying body of knowledge. More than anything, they criticize the system, they provide a vision, they also tell people how they can live a more sustainable life. Uh, but to me, this is also about a methodology to materialize the, the kind of life we want to uh, live in. And we saw a remarkable coherence across our interview sample of people from around the world there. Exactly. The shared domain also identifies the boundaries of the permaculture community. So who's in and who's out? And it helps to define what's the connection of permaculture to the mainstream. So it kind of defines the relationship of permaculture to mainstream environmentalism and also to the mainstream system of political economy itself. To me, the ethics and the design principles are the, the most important defining elements of, of permaculture, you know, and you can really like if you if you identify with the ethics and if you if you believe in those principles, then you are a permaculturalist. So to me, it's somehow clear how you can define yourself or not define, you know, if you believe in the ethics and the principles and you use them some way in your life, in your in whatever way, uh, then you can call yourself a permaculturist. I don't know what you think. Well, I guess there's an, a critique of, of industrial agriculture that's embedded into the design principles and yeah. that separates permaculturists from that system. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Right, well, let's speak to the, the communality domain now or the communality element of permaculture as a community of practice. What can we say here? Yeah, so when we think about the communality, we are thinking about uh, the binding glue. What is bringing people together, the web of interactions, relationships, joint activities. These All these facilitate mutual learning, knowledge exchange uh, within the collective, right? And we can say that this communality is somehow centered around the permaculture design course, uh, but also national and international convergences organizations and demonstration sites that exist um, in different places and localities. And all these like act as a hub for practitioners to interact, to meet, to exchange ideas. And uh, yeah, it creates this, this large network, which is also on social media, in fact. Uh, so it's not only physically uh, present, but uh, you can see this, uh, this, this network online. And I think community building is really, which also came uh, came through our interviews, is people consciously really want to, to build communities. It is really their main goal, building relationships, build, uh, connecting with like-minded people. And that's what's interesting about the permaculture movement. So you've got this extraordinarily, very strongly linked network around the world of, of permaculture practitioners, and you've got lots of demonstration sites that are have global reputation, uh, like series here in Melbourne. We've documented quite a few of them. So what were some of the other demonstration sites that we've, we've talked about in our publications? Yeah, one in Malawi, yeah, the one in India. I mean, I actually really got, because I, I visited uh, Aranya um, 
you know, the organization which uh, which organized the international convergence. And also pre before that, they have organized the Indian national convergence. So I, I did, a, did my permaculture design course with them. And then I, I really got to know them. And um, yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, but there are numerous, uh, numerous examples in Latin America, in Africa, in Zimbabwe is really, really common. And they have achieved loads of things. But yeah, this horizontal diffusion model, it's quite extraordinary that the movement has spread from a couple of guys in Tasmania to spread around the world, largely through the permaculture design course of a small group of people coming together to learn the PDC curriculum. And then they reach a level of expertise where they go off and set up their own PDC. And then the process continues and continues. So you get this horizontal spread. And there's been a few sort of valiant pioneers who've taken the permaculture message to new ground in, in different countries. Uh, and this has been extraordinarily successful for a grassroots movement. Uh, and the permaculture design course is really central to this. But the permaculture convergences, these play a really interesting role because it, it's much more than just a conference. It's more than just people getting together and presenting the work that they're doing. There's so much more to that. So you go to a, like an international permaculture convergence, what's going on? Yeah, you see all these people coming from all over the world with different backgrounds, with different ecologies, with different economies, with different societies and cultures and problems. And it's fascinating to see that they all somehow connect to permaculture in their own way, right? And this is really, really amazing because permaculture provides that kind of uh, framework for people. You don't need to accept everything. You don't need to like agree with every single principle of it. You know, you just see what, what is suitable to you, to your ecology, to your economy, to your culture, to your setting, basically, to your little community, and then you you practice it. You know, I, it, it, is, it is really fascinating. I, I really don't know so many movements which provide that kind of a, a framework for people. So like, for example, the, the, the convergence in India, it was really fascinating to see people coming from, it, there were so many people from uh, Asian countries around, around India uh, which was really, really interesting. First of all, it showed that permaculture is, is really something that people are fascinated with in that part of the world, first of all. Uh, second, they made the effort to come to the convergence. Third, they were sharing their experience. People were trying to learn from each other. People were, were trying to teach each other, to exchange ideas. But there were also so many people from, from different African countries uh, and then you could see how this knowledge exchange uh, from two different continents with different backgrounds, different, you know, problems. This knowledge exchange is happening. People are learning from each other, but also that people are connecting to permaculture in totally different ways. Mm. And that shared domain of the permaculture ethics and principles, that design system, because it's intentionally meant to cater to locally unique conditions and needs, isn't it? So. It's not prescriptive in the same way that other movements might be. So you have to do it like this. That's that's not what permaculture is about. And it's got this great way of being able to accommodate diversity in that way because it's got something to offer to everyone from whatever context yeah. you're in. So it was interesting at the, the permaculture convergence, like seeing people from, from China who are working in huge mega urban environments in cities like Shanghai and Beijing where their challenges are like, how do you live sustainably in this concrete and steel megapolis and introduce green space? How do you get safe, clean food? Very different challenges to some of the peasant farmers that we met from India at the IPC or colleagues that are working in Africa where the, the challenges are very different. 
Exactly, yeah. That's not to say that there are not power differential in the permaculture movement. And there have been some criticisms of permaculture in different contexts. Like there's the one of emanating from Central America talking about permaculture as a gringo movement, referring to uh, rich Americans that are coming down into Central America and trying to set up permaculture farms in communities that they're not otherwise connected with in any other way. A similar kind of criticism could be valid in Australia, where it's talking about permaculture as very a white middle-class movement uh, that doesn't really have much to offer for people from lower socioeconomic groups. It's not very inclusive of people from different ethnic backgrounds. And there's no reason, there's nothing inherent to permaculture as a design system that should make it that way. There's, there's other factors in play. What are these different power differentials within the permaculture movement? What's that telling us about how the movement's functioning? Yeah, as you rightly mentioned, this is a criticism uh, which is uh, correct in many ways. And I think we should really reflect on it, see how we can solve this problem. But yes, basically the problem is that different socioeconomic backgrounds are not always represented in the movement. Uh, So when we think about the global north and the south divide in permaculture, for example, we see that in the global south, mostly we have like farmers practicing permaculture, pe- people who are actually making a living from permaculture. And then in the global north, it becomes more like a project to criticize market economy and the global uh, production of food. So this is something for us to, to think about. Why is it that the global south has managed to attract farmers and people who are producing food for their living? But in the global north, it has become more like something to criticize a, a system. Uh, which is which is good. We need we need these kind of criticisms, right? But we somehow need to think how we can reach out more to people, to communities around us, also be as people who are living in the global north, uh, who are more impoverished and living in deprived areas. How can we include them? How can permaculture become a more inclusive movement in the global north as well? And we saw the like particularly at, in Hyderabad at the International Convergence, we saw the decolonizing permaculture working group. We saw the emergence of the Permaqueer Network or Women Mm -hmm. in Permaculture Movement. That's been gathering momentum for quite a long time. And it really feels like over the last 10 years that I've been involved in permaculture, that there's been a generational shift in the movement as well. As the pioneers, you know, have made their contribution and a new generation of permies is coming through. Let's talk about the shared practices of permaculture. It's a bit obvious, shared practices, what they are, is about practices, right? About tools, about styles, about languages, stories, and many other things that members, people share within this kind of collective that we are talking about. What is interesting is that this shared praxis is on the one hand a praxis, but it's also a, a desired outcome. So thinking about what we want and There are different forms of local level community organizations around it. Uh, Some are focusing on farming and growing food. But it's interesting that some of these are focusing on socioeconomic initiatives. And they are using the, taking those elements of praxis for these initiatives. All of these are informed by what we call permaculture canon. uh, And they are somehow centered around the demonstration sites and the, the hub where people can go and see how people are practicing permaculture. We also see that this practice somehow in some context, uh, not everywhere, is being connected to uh, the broader environmental and social justice movements, uh, which is also quite important. So one of permaculture's great strengths is how it's so humanising because it focuses on community-level organisation. 
But that's also a weakness in some respects when it comes to trying to coordinate at international scale, because there there haven't been as well-developed tools that this movement has been able to use in order to coordinate at a bigger level. And part of that is that like the diversity that we've just discussed with the movement, it's really difficult to cohere around common interests that you would organise around that everyone will agree on because permaculture practitioners' needs are very different. So what kind of initiatives have you seen in terms of shared practices that can work across international boundaries? You know, it's, it's very difficult, actually, to, to I think, to answer this question because it really depends on where you are located. I think it's really, you cannot generalize this. It really depends on the re, on the local and regional, your location, basically, right? And the kind of challenges you have. And I can't think of something which is very universal, which we can say is applicable or significant kind of practice for everybody everywhere, basically, in the world, you know? So it is very, we have to be very, very, cautious about this, I think, that are depending on the, the locality if you are in, then we we think about kind of the, basically the political and socioeconomic context we have, we think about those practices that can somehow diffuse beyond our uh, national borders. What do you think? Do you think there are some particular element or practices that can be really universally relevant? Well, this is a really interesting question. Because if, if we're advocating that permaculture should be adopted as a mainstream practice and we're trying to advocate this to, say, governments or international bodies, they'll say, okay, who's representing permaculture? Is there a united vision? And the answer is, well, yes, there's this shared domain, but no, there's certainly not any body that could claim to represent the breadth and diversity of this movement. In some ways, I feel like permaculture is really good at being a, uh, a methodology for grassroots community level mobilization, but it's probably at its best allied with other social justice movements mm-hmm. at an international scale that do have a more, a more organized political structure that can mobilize and it can be complementary with, uh, with other social justice movements, whether that's in environmentalism mm-hmm. or in uh, movements to address wealth inequality and things like that. So there are limits to permaculture at a global level, but it does have this really strong international network and that network can be leveraged. So I guess rather than offering permaculture wholesale, there might be specific issues where permaculture can offer some answers uh, or a way forward in specific issue areas. So a couple of examples, you know, through the Permaculture CoLab project, there was a climate change cluster and in the lead up, mm-hmm. the uh, the COP in in Paris in 2015 produced the permaculture climate change statement, which I was marginally involved in. But that was a really cool initiative that the movement put forward with people from around the world that contributed to that document. And so I think it's more niche issue areas like that where permaculture has something really strong to offer at an international level. But again, the co- the collective action problem at this scale, I don't know if permaculture's got an answer to this because it's such a diffuse and diverse movement. Mm -hmm. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. With your research in India, what's the unique place for peasant farmers within the permaculture movement? Yeah, what I found very fascinating in India was that 
a lot of farmers, so small farmers or peasants who were adopting permaculture practices, they were actually not calling it permaculture. They were saying these are the traditional ways of doing agriculture, of practicing uh, agriculture that we have done for centuries. But because of the Green Revolution, they were somehow removed from our practices, and now we are back to it. And I found it a very interesting also angle from the permaculture uh, activists who were trying to to teach these, uh, basically reteach these small-scale farmers and peasants permaculture. But when the peasants were learning them, they were like, oh, wait a second, this is actually a method that we historically used to use, but now we forgot it. You know, so it is very interesting that permaculture offers that angle, that something that people can, the small peasants and farmers can think that is not coming from elsewhere, but it is actually part of their tradition and they are relearning it. And there actually is a lot of joy involved because something that they had to forget about is coming back to to them and they really love it. And then, okay, there are some activists who go to these little uh, farms to, to teach uh, the, the peasants uh, these, these principles. But then when they learn it, uh, many of them, they volunteer to teach the other peasants and other farmers because they see how, how useful it is and how by just changing some things, some small things in their farm, they can suddenly get much more food, you know, or a lot of problems, for example, the problem they had with water is now solved. Uh, so they then they go, they reach out themselves to the others uh, who are also peasants and, and small farmers. So this is really fascinating. That is not something that is coming from Australia for them. It's something that belongs to them. It's theirs, but it was forgotten. And now it's back, you know? And that's, I think that's how this, this movement has been so successful in the global South, because I think if these kind of practices have been part of the traditional ways of farming before the Green Revolutions, before the mechanization of agriculture. And now farmers feel, oh, wait a second, right? Like my grandparents were using this, but we weren't. So let's get back to that. And they really love it. And they see how it really changes their lives. So the permaculture movement at its best then provides a space for the reuptake of traditional practices that might have been lost or severely degraded over time. And so maybe the best space for allyship for people from the global north is to support the the reuptake of traditional knowledge systems and traditional practices, rather than trying to impose a a permaculture dogma from outside. It really depends on the approach of the people who are trying to do that outreach and ally with peasant farming communities, is to not come in and impose something, is to work with the knowledge of people in place. Exactly. And I think in many occasions, they were trying to also learn from farmers themselves, you know, so it was like a very collaborative way of working together. Although they were wor- they were going to these peasants and small farmers as permaculture activists to, to show them how they can fix the problems in their farms. Uh, however, at the same time, they were trying to learn from what they were doing, you know, because some things they were doing were right, but some things were wrong. So they were trying to correct those mistakes through the permaculture practice and principles, but also learning from them. So this mutual exchange uh, is also very, very important. And as you are very correctly saying that th- to give them the idea that you're not actually coming from somewhere else to tell you what to do, but it's like we are just learning from each other. And I guess in this space, the permaculture movement, there's a lot of crossover with indigenous land sovereignty struggles in various cases around the world. 
In your research, have you investigated any examples of that? Not actually directly, no. But yeah, there were some. So in in South India, where I did my research, and where a permaculture uh, movement is more dominant than the North. Yes, they have been. There have been some examples, some cases uh, that people starting to mobilize uh, through permaculture, but there were landless uh, agricultural laborers. And then through permaculture, they came together and they they somehow then managed to also negotiate to, to get back land, which has been taken historically from them, you know, but like the starting point was a permaculture. And then through that network, they managed to get access to some land to, to work on. Particularly a big issue in settler colonial society. There are some initiatives in the United States of permaculture working with First Nations groups in allied practice. It's something that's starting to emerge in Australia, but it's still very nascent. It's unfortunate mm-hmm. that we didn't get to go to Argentina for the, the latest international right. last year, because I, I think there's a lot of examples of this from Latin America as well that would have been really interesting to engage with. Yeah, and it was. I think that was something that was really missing. We didn't have many representatives in the India convergence, right, from Latin America, and it would have been a very interesting uh, and complementary for for the convergence to have like a Latin American perspective. Yeah, but hopefully in the future. Right. Should we talk a little bit about COVID? Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how the permaculture community has mobilized itself in the context of the COVID pandemic. I think what is very important, I have seen a lot of community level uh, mobilizations and organizing. So not necessarily permaculture, but we saw how states basically failed to to support people when this pandemic started, right? Then it just was up to us, to people at the grassroots to help each other and to, to support each other and to provide these networks and to provide food and to provide care and, you know, bring uh, medicine if people need it. Uh, so it really, really was something very unique to see that in the absence of a state support, people come together and they help each other and they support each other. And actually it really works, you know, and this energy somehow that is somehow wasted and people don't know what to do with. Uh, when the pandemic started, everybody suddenly knew what to do with that, you know, and everybody came to help each other. And it was really amazing. Because permaculture provides this methodology for community level organisation, it's perfect for this kind of circumstances, isn't it? So you throw in mutual aid networks, you throw in growing locally grown food and distribution. Permaculture was made for this kind of crisis moment. Permaculture activists that I've seen doing stuff in this space, they've been fantastic and they've been doing great work. More controversially, though, the permaculture movement, like a lot of society, has been cut across by the politics of masks and vaccines. That's a bit, yeah, strange. Because it leads to more fragmentation, right? I mean, we were discussing that there are some sort of, yeah, like these fragments that exist, and then it somehow makes it difficult to call permaculture a coherent movement. But uh, if these things are happening as well, then it's really dangerous, right? Because it's even like further fragmentations. Yeah, it's like the countercultural component of, per- of the permaculture movement at its most or at its worst in a way that's destructive rather than constructive. Yeah. I mean, it's really difficult for me. Like I'm pro-mask, I'm pro-vaccine. 
I think this is really important you know, for the health of society and I take my responsibilities to the people around me really seriously. Personally, I find it really confronting, that element of the permaculture movement. Even though I have great love for the people who adopt those positions, there's so, there's so much common ground. But on this one, it's really, it's really difficult cleavage to overcome because it's so politicised yeah. now and it's so toxic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this idea, I, yeah, I felt very strange here in the UK because I used to live in Germany. And like here, this idea of like, it is my right to decide. There is absence, I think, of understanding what is a public health issue, you know, is, is something collective. If your decision is going to impact others' well-being and health. And I think so, this is something that a lot of people struggle with here. Is my, they always say, it's my individual decision. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to get vaccinated. But this understanding that this decision actually impacts the broader community and society somehow is absent, you know, the understanding. So it's, yeah, I, like if you were here, like, I don't know, we, it was comp- like obligatory to wear a mask on a train, for example, for a very long time. And then I was on a train and I could see like a group of teenagers not wearing a mask. And no one, first of all, can say anything to them because no one feels that they are in a position to say it. And they also feel that they are in a position not to wear it, you know, but like in a country like Germany, that, that sense of belonging to a society, a, a larger community is so strong. People would tell you, people would call the police that these people are not wearing a mask, you know? So I found it very, very different here and very actually disturbing. And it really exposes the limits of ideologies that privilege individualism because there's a complete lack of understanding of us as constituents of systems, of ecosystems, of of complex social and economic systems. Uh, And if we're hyper-individualist, it's like none of those connections exist, which is garbage, right? We're all in this complex matrix of different relationships and everything that we do matters and has an impact of some kind which leads me to climate adaptation because the same kind of issues apply when we think of climate change you know we just had the ipcc's sixth assessment report at least the, the physical basis part of that report come out recently very sobering reading not surprising reading to anyone who's been remotely connected to environmentalism over the last 30 years But what I found interesting was that the language of the report was much more forthright than it ever has been. I mean, the IPCC is a politicised or it's a political institution and it's always been very conservative and measured in how it communicates the science of climate change to policymakers and has been probably rightly criticised for being too conservative in its predictions in previous reports. This time around, there was no sugarcoating it. The language was very forthright. We need to act now. This is of extreme urgency. So what were your takeaways from looking at the report? Yeah, I felt the same. The urgency of it, that we really need to do something now. Otherwise, there are no other. I mean, otherwise, we are basically done for, you know, is like this is the time to act now. As we see in the slogan, some of the environmentalists take it, act now. And the now is really like in capital. You know, if you don't act now, there is no other option. And the fact that also that we are even in a worse position that we uh, we had thought we were in, right? So the, that was the, one of the messages of the report that we thought we were actually okay, but we are actually not okay at all. It's really horrible what's going on. And the urgency, yes, I think it is, it is something to really think about and act upon. 
And that I think makes the research and work on climate climate justice, on climate change, climate crisis. I, I prefer to call it crisis. It's a climate crisis. It's not climate change. It's, because change is like, ah, oh, okay, maybe some people are getting more rain, some people are getting more heat. It's not that. It's a, it's a crisis. We have fires all over. We have floods. We have, you know, heat waves that are killing people. So it is a crisis. I think we really need to talk in this language. Now, what we've seen in, in previous IPCC documents is in terms of adaptation and responses to this crisis, it's still very much couched in the language of sustainable development and green capitalism and the eco-modernist vision of green technology and decarbonisation of the economy. It doesn't talk about social justice. It doesn't talk much about degrowth or, or reducing consumption. So in terms of where permaculture sits in the, the climate adaptation response, the vision that permaculture proposes for the world through the permaculture ethics, that still doesn't have strong representation within the climate adaptation language of the IPCC and, and international environmental institutions. So I'm really intrigued when the, the adaptation report of the uh, sixth assessment comes out, I think it's coming out later this year, isn't it? To see if some of the language around adaptation changes to incorporate other visions. Yeah, that would be interesting to see, yeah. For you as a social movement scholar, what's the importance of social movements in 2021? What's the contribution to be made? Yeah, as we discussed, we have really seen that the states have failed. They don't do anything for us. It's all in our hands as people, people power, people organizing, people supporting each other, people trying to contribute to change. And this is what social movements do, actually, right? This is the, the main contributions of social movements, that we do not only demand that the states do something for us, but we also do it the prefigure, right? There is this prefigurative politics literature now that we actually live, we, try, we live the change we want to have. Uh, we try to show that it's possible. Uh, we try to, to envision in our everyday practices and lives the world we want to live in. I think the pandemic climate crisis and a crisis of global capitalism in general has shown that we really, we really need more movements, more activism. We need systemic change. We need to think beyond what we have. Within this socioeconomic system, we are not going anywhere, basically. This is really my, my conclusion of 2021 September. You know, it's like, really, we need systemic change most problems or all problems, in fact, we are facing from the pandemic to climate crisis to food crisis, global inequalities. They are all result of the socioeconomic system that we have. We need to come up with visions for future, how we can change, how we can transform, what kind of a world we want to have beyond the socioeconomic system and how we, we reach that world. That's something that I always preface my permaculture courses and my environmental politics teaching with is that we're in one of those transition moments now akin to the Industrial Revolution in Europe 200 years ago where all of the settled assumptions that underpinned the previous way of doing society are up for renegotiation again because the system itself is failing. As you say, it's very obvious in the climate crisis. It's obvious in the manifestation of COVID. It's obvious in global inequality and the rise of left and right-wing populisms around the world and the failures of institutions of all kinds. There's so many clues that we're at one of these historical transition points. And so, one, that's scary. 
But on the positive side, it means that what we do now really matters in responding to that. Mm -hmm. So the net, the new isms that are going to shape the next century or two centuries are being developed right now, and we're part of the process of developing them. So I, I think that's a really awesome responsibility and a, a positive side to the moment that we're living in. And something that as participants in the permaculture movement, as participants in other social movements, that we can play an important role in shaping. Exactly. Instead of feeling depressed, it is a depressing world at the moment, I think. If you if you allow if we allow ourselves to feel depressed, we can easily feel depressed, right? Because of all these things happening at the same time. But on the other hand, as you are saying, it's our responsibility to not feel depressed and to, to be more positive about it and to think that this is the moment that we are going to change and we are going to envision a world beyond this world that we have. And what is that vision and what are the ways and strategies to, to arrive there? I think this is very, very important. I have been always thinking, I mean, okay, not always, but like recent, more recently, actually, like, Thinking a bit more about the most vulnerable in this climate crisis, you know, because, okay, like we are here, maybe we get some floods at some point, I don't know, but still we are living in our homes and we are safe, we have food, we have some income, but like some people's livelihood is endangered with this climate crisis. They, they gonna lose everything. There will be like millions of climate refugees people won't be able to live in their in their countries and cities anymore or or villages anymore uh, villages are going to sink in the oceans you know it's just like to think about those who are most vulnerable in this crisis and to think how we can work with them and how how we can somehow include them in this conversation about climate crisis i think is is something very important and the COVID crisis has given us a lesson in this. It's like a resilient society is a just society. So if we want to be resilient against the climate threat, then we've got to take these social justice issues seriously so that there's a place for everyone, that the human dignity of everyone is respected, that everyone has livelihoods and, and the capacity to live and be their best. For me, that's the great lesson of COVID that has huge implications for addressing the climate crisis. It's the next thing on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. I'm very interested to talk about your approach to your fieldwork. One, because you're a sociologist, so your approach to being in the field is slightly different to me as an international relations specialist. So I'm just fascinated to compare notes and, and see what we do similarly and what we do differently. But also as someone who's neurodivergent, there's very specific things about how I go about fieldwork. There's some things that I find very difficult, like cold calling people I don't know, the practicalities of travel and things like that. For example, when I was at the beginning of my project interviewing permaculture practitioners from around the world, I was really terrified about how to contact people and how to set up meetings and things like that. I mean, for most people, that's not an issue. For me, there's some issues around that in terms of, of levels of comfort and just having a process of having conversations and not having to think on my feet because of having issues with short-term memory and cognitive function in a moment when I'm put under pressure. And indeed, that's one of the reasons for doing this podcast is that by conducting these interviews, I want to be able to get better at talking to people and thinking on my feet. Part of this learning journey for me is to see how my colleagues do it and, and what kind of things do you, do you like and do well, but also what are some of the things that you struggle with in doing the fieldwork? 
Yeah, I completely agree with you, Ben. That is difficult to call people that you don't know out of the blue and say, you know, can you give me some time? I want to discuss something. Yeah, but what on, on the positive note is that because I do research mostly with social movement activists, they're always really excited about talking, you know. So when they get a call or when they get an email, they are like, yes, sure. Most in most cases is yes, sure. We really want to share our experience and. Then, for example, I think, okay, I'm going to go and talk for one hour with them. Then we end up like talking for two hours or three hours, much longer than what I had anticipated. Because we also somehow, I do mostly research on movements that I like, you know, I don't, I don't research right wing social movements, for example, because I don't identify with them myself. So I somehow choose movements that I have some some interesting and then uh, of course we end up talking for much longer and then the conversation is really amazing but what I also really enjoy is participant observation to just be there and participate in the activities of the movements uh, I just love being in protests and demonstrations and looking at the slogans and the chants and the songs and, and listen to the songs and listen to the music people are playing and all of this is just so much joy you know I really really truly enjoy it but I completely agree with you that the interview aspect is sometimes a bit difficult but I think once people start trusting you then they really open up and they tell you some really amazing things you know about their experiences about their challenges about the way they're thinking about it about where they're thinking to go with it Um, so this I think building mutual respect is very, very important. And also to probably like communicate the fact that I am also going to learn a lot from you is not that, you know, I'm, I'm getting some information from you because I want to write a book or, or some articles, but it's, it's a very mutual thing. I'm learning a lot and maybe I can share some of my experience with you as well. Yeah, this is the approach I usually try to take. And and I have been quite successful, I think. Uh, Of course, it depends on the context. Sometimes it is a bit more difficult. But I think overall, when I think about the past couple of years um, that I have been doing research, I I feel it it is a very enjoyable process. Initially, when I started doing my PhD research, it was really daunting. And then I realized, actually, this is going to be a career-long project of relationship building and snowballing networks and connections over time. It's not a one-shot hit. Yeah, this is a relationship building project that I'm going to have to keep undertaking through my career. And so that took some of the pressure off, actually. You do end up having some really fantastic conversations once there's a level of trust builder. It's what I love about fieldwork. And it's, again, one of the rationales for this podcast. I want to try and bring the joy of that fieldwork experience to conversations like this one. And also in a one-on-one format where I feel like I'm most comfortable and at my best. The name Cafe, Mm -hmm. chat over coffee. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is a really amazing uh, initiative you have. It's it's great. This was a really fulfilling and enjoyable collaboration that we did, despite the fact that we haven't actually seen each other in person since December 2017 in Hyderabad. But we've been able to develop this paper and uh, it's been a fantastic process. From the moment that we started brainstorming where we might go with the project, because obviously we had this overlap of research interests, but there's a lot that has to happen to go from that convergence of interests to a published paper. What I enjoyed was that we were able to relinquish our ego over the process. So to me, I visualized it like 
playing tennis. I hit the ball over the net to you, the ball being the project, and while you've got the ball, you're in charge and, and you shape it and take it in the direction that you think it needed to go. And you hit the ball back to me and then it's my turn. But while you've got the ball, I relinquish any attachment to it and trust that you'll shape it in a good way and, and vice versa. So I found that really interesting and really enjoyable. Every research collaboration is different. There's different dynamics between the people, but this was an enjoyable one for me. Oh, I completely agree. And I, I really like the way you're putting it with the, the balls, right? Because that's exactly what we did. And it, it worked so well. And we, we really trusted each other. You know, I think some people get nervous when they give the ball to the to the other person because they don't know what's gonna what's gonna happen with the with the whole thing, you know. So they they can't do that, in fact. And is that feeling of anxiety all the time. But I felt at least very comfortable, you know, when I was giving the ball to you because I knew you're going to do something really awesome with it and then giving it back to me. And then I was doing my best to do something I could, you know. So I think it's also about trust again. Like we were talking about trust in interviews and like building trust between people. This is the exact same thing. Um, yeah, although we, we couldn't really see each other in person, but I think that the component of trust really, really helped. And, and confidence in each other that, yes, the other person is actually really capable of doing something great with, with these ideas and with this project. Uh, and then when it comes back to me, I also do my best, you know, and it really works well. If you were supervising a young early career researcher who was doing a, a research collaboration for the first time, what kind of advice would you give them? First, to choose the collaborator very carefully, <laughs> because sometimes collaborations can be painful, in fact, in, instead of joy, you know, like we really enjoyed this. It was a very joyful process, but it can be very difficult. So I wouldn't really recommend working with someone you don't trust or you don't have the confidence in. So I would really choose my collaborator very, very carefully. And then the moment I chose them, I would really then try to to play this game that you just explained in a very nice way with the balls right do your work then give the wall, ball to the other person and just trust them and wait and see what they do with the with the ideas with the paper with the book with whatever it is that the project that you're working together and then take it back and then you do your best that component of trust and confidence i think is very very important from the very beginning so don't work with just whoever comes across your way and you don't have to say yes to every collaboration. Oh, no, exactly. That's actually what I, I tell some of my, uh, my PhD students. You have to learn to say no to so many things in academia, I think, because you get like so much and so many people ask you for different things. You have to focus on, you have to have some main thing in your academic life and then some satellites around it. But you can't have so many satellites because you get distracted, right? So you choose the main thing very carefully, and then you choose some of those satellites also very carefully, but then you say no to many other things. I think in academia, we should really learn this from, a, from the time that we are doing PhD. Otherwise, it becomes really hard. <laughs> yeah, a couple of moons, not the whole asteroid belt. <laughs> the other funny thing about our project that I, I really enjoyed was our spirited discussions over who would be the first named author. <laughs> we were both desperate not to be and to, to hand over the prestige to the other person. Uh, so even though I'm the first named, it wasn't for extreme lack of trying to, to let you have it. But in our case, we are both at the same level of career. 
So there's not the same power differential, say, as if we were publishing with one of our grad students, for example. So my philosophy in that case is to always let the junior person be the first named author because they need it for their career. Uh, they need that prestige. And that should be the right thing to do as someone who's more established. How do you feel about that approach? Because it's not a common one. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. As long as the person is ready, because, okay, this prestige of being the first author comes with some responsibility, right? So if the person is ready to take that responsibility, of course, I think to me, this is an amazing approach. But sometimes it might be that person doesn't feel confident or comfortable. They really want, you know, uh, supervision of someone who is a bit more senior. Then in that case, if they feel they're really not in that position to take on the responsibility, then is I think it is okay to be the, the second author, you know. It's, it's a very ambitious thing, right? Like to be the first author of a journal article, and especially if the journal is, is a very good journal. So um, it comes with prestige, but it also comes with responsibility and work. But it should definitely be something that's a, an explicit discussion that's had understanding that yeah. there's a power dynamic in play. And I think that the, the best supervisors are good at that. And that's certainly something that I've tried to emulate in my practice. Exactly. It's also a learning process. So had, I think it is really good. It's a, at somehow uh, an advice to, to early careers who, who really want to publish that. Go for it. Really take on the work. Take, it, is, it is ambitious. It might, it might feel a bit like intimidating. But it's not difficult. It's not impossible. You can do it. So just do it. And then you will get the support of the, the supervisor or the senior colleague. And then it will work, you know, and then you will become the first author of the, of the paper. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. This is such an interesting space. Permaculture is one of a number of methodologies for sustainable societies that are evolving environmentalism from no to yes movements. Or to put it another way, taking environmentalism from protest-based activism into more holistic community building based on ecological and economic regeneration. What Simon highlighted is that permaculture is political praxis as well based on creating new economic and social systems that send tangible political, social and market signals to existing institutions and give permaculture practitioners leverage in relation to those structures. It's not just about farms and gardens. This is something we'll continue to explore in later episodes. If you'd like to support the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast, please click on the like and subscribe buttons on the platform you're listening on. You can support the podcast materially with a one-off PayPal contribution or by subscribing as an Edge Dwellers Cafe member on Patreon. Your financial support helps to cover the costs of hosting, production, editing and research for the podcast. Thanks for joining me. This is Ben Habib saying goodbye from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Stay safe, much love and tend that compost. <laughs>